So what I was saying <laughs> is I think the nice thing about having a child mm-hmm. versus having a pet is that um, you don't on one, the, the, the problem with it is that it's a different, it's kind of a different challenge. Right. As these things come up, the nice side, the nice side of it is that they're becoming human. You know, yeah. like you said, like the newest, the newest in a way challenge is that it, that he's eating solid food, but the upside of that is like, oh, we get to eat him human food. We get to feed him. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I, I don't know. I guess we're on the side. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, no, the evolution is very interesting. It's like, you've got this little person that's everything you do is kind of something they react to and, you know, informs what they're going to become, yeah. which is uh, kind of scary, but also awesome. Is this, uh, is this something you saw yourself doing? Is this was this all on purpose? I th- yeah, I think it was in the cards. I think it's <laughs> something we wanted. So, um, I guess you can never like fully time that. So, it, when it happened, it was great. And uh, you know, parenting is it definitely puts everything else into perspective. Especially like, you know, when I look back at revising my second book, I could you know it was like this open ended thing. I could do yeah. it whenever. And now it's so focused. Like you get these little pockets of time. And you have to really maximize those pockets. You can't like sit on the couch. And yeah, but I mean, maybe that's good. I mean, you know, I, I know. I think every writer needs deadlines, right? I and mean, that's an important part of the process. I don't. The thing about doing something just completely on your own without answering to anybody is it's really easy to let languish. Oh yeah, you can just sit back, and, and next thing you know, like six months have passed, and you haven't typed a sentence. Uh, but it, it definitely makes you value your time differently. Um, and now it's like if I have a half hour, I can crank out a couple chapters yeah. and like a couple thousand words. Whereas before, I would kind of tinker with it much more, and because it's this open-ended thing. But but there's always been for you. There's always been a certain constraint in terms of free time because you've always had a day job, right? Yeah, and uh, there's some instances when it overlaps. You know, when I, if I'm writing something for Archie, I work at Archie, so there's yeah. some blurring of the lines there but if i'm working on a novel i can't do that at work i can't really do that while working doing publicity stuff so yeah there's i guess a separation of church and state but um it's it's a funny thing i mean i I remember i remember a couple of jobs ago uh we had somebody leave and we were we were like you know just going going through somebody's drawers as you do after they leave like cleaning everything up and just found all these manuscripts of books i'm surprised they left it there like that's so bizarre i it's (laughs) yeah i don't know i mean i'm sure that there were backups yeah did you read them a little bit were they good i mean not they're not my cup of tea (laughs) yeah um they're very much uh kind of a pet project right um Oh, so they weren't kind of they weren't really up to snuff i guess well i you know it's it's one of those i I don't want (laughs) to Talking to you, I don't want to like say say genre fiction as a bad thing, but like it's really easy to make bad genre fiction. Yeah, and I think that's I I think it's easy to make bad fiction in general. But when you're working with a very specific template, it's really easy to fall back on the tropes. Right. Yeah, because if if you just default to those tropes, then all you have is something that has been read or written a million times before and a thousand times better. So I don't know. For me, it was. What do I like about this genre? What can I do a little yeah. differently? And it all boil- to me, it boiled down to like, let me write something I would want to read. And that sounds trite, but it's also, I felt like what I wanted to read was different from what was coming out. Mm. So it kind of dovetailed really well. How, how at least initially, how how was it different? I, I, you know, the one, and maybe this is just comics thinking. I, yeah. was, I, I never read the origin story. I never read mm. a novel that was to sure. me like this is, you know. Maybe it probably exists. Like this is Matt Scudder's first yeah. adventure. Or this is uh, it's like they're know, hard boiled, but how do they get so? hard? You always <laughs> seem to find them like they're yeah, just they've crotchety already, yeah. and they've been through the yeah 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 right. Or when you meet Marlo, he's already kind of sitting in his office, yeah. and the femme fatale walks in, and that it seems felt- like everybody's like close to their like last assignment. You know, they're like yeah. they're they're definitely on the the down slope of the trajectory, right? And I was really interested in telling the story of a detective before he was even a detective, before he even knew yeah. he, he was a detective, and. Uh, to me, that meant what what career should this guy have mm. that would kind of lead him to being a detective? Yeah, I, I knew he was going to be a washout, like a mess. We find him at kind of his lowest point, and then as give him, giving him a reporter's background really helped him kind of ease into being yeah. a detective. Um, but I wanted to tell that story, like how he started, as opposed to we meet him and he's already kind of this alpha detective. That really is you, you really are getting that uh, shades of Batman, right? Of of, uh, of how like. All right, this guy is 
kung fu master or the world's greatest detective, and now we've got to kind of go back and extrapolate and figure and, out how. Yeah, I don't know. And things. those those are the Batman stories that kind of interest me the yeah. least when he has no ability to yeah. fail. Like, let me just call Oracle and yeah. she'll download all this information, or I have thirteen sidekicks. And I know there's an audience for that, but I, I love Batman Year One, like those classic Legends of the Dark Knight books that are really exploring kind of his early days where he's not as refined you know like maybe he'll mess up Mm -hmm. maybe he'll get arrested Mm -hmm. or maybe he'll lose yeah um and i know you can't really do that with corporate comic characters that much i mean the whole point is they win and they kind of fulfill this fan fantasy so and um, and keep perpetuating the books that have been around forever right yeah it's like just (laughs) yeah it's like you can restart it every few years but you can't just you know every few yeah, or this kind of belief that change is happening when change isn't really happening. Like, you have these kind of yeah. pockets where, you know, nothing will be the same. And yeah. then eventually by the end of the year, they are the same because that's why people are buying these books. So funny, though, that, it, you know, I'm talking to an Archie guy about this. <laughs> right, know, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously Archie's Oh, yeah, been through, I'm as guilty as the, Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, there's there have been some sort of changes there. But, I mean, that's kind of the point, right? right. Is that they're teenagers and they're the same problems that they've been going through for what 60 75 years years yeah Yeah, it's a 75th anniversary um yeah i mean there's still the triangle they're still like having sodas at pops and even as much you know you can modernize it and tinker with it but it's still the crux of the story is teenage romance teenage drama and we've i think with the new iteration wade has kind of turned up the drama a little bit and managed to keep the humor yeah Uh, and it's a lot more i think that makes it a lot more heartfelt Whereas I think the earlier stuff, which is great, it's more sitcom-y and more kind of comic strip style. It's You can read them at any time, at any mm-hmm. point. There's no continuity. Um, but he's add that, added that layer to the new Riverdale stuff, which I, I think it just changes the game. I went, I went to, I was in a weird, uh, I was going down a weird YouTube rabbit hole a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Okay. And you know, you know, what I time think was it? It was, it was, yeah, it was YouTube rabbit hole o'clock. Yeah. Uh, and I was reading about this, um, you know the CW series, right? And uh, somebody, and I, I hadn't heard of this, but somebody had referenced a uh, TV movie. Oh yeah, to Riverdale and back, back again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went back and watched it, and that's some really. I mean, I assume that you've seen it. That was my first uh, childhood encounter with sadness, like complete sadness. I, I sh- shit you not. <laughs> it's just w- uh, what, what, what part? I mean, I was a huge... I am. A, obviously, I work at sure. Archie, but as a kid, I was a huge Archie fan. Like, I sent out those mail-order coupons to get the Bendable Archie. You live a charm life. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you think about that, like, the, that, that TV. Yeah, when, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I'm reading these books, getting... Every yeah. time we go to the grocery store, we get a couple digests, and I'm... This is my thing. And then I find out there's going to be this TV movie, uh-huh. like a live-action Archie sure. movie. So my sister and I stay up late, late, being maybe like 8.30 or yeah. 9 o'clock. And we watch it, and it's we watch the whole thing, and it's bizarre. They're, they're it's older. There's strange. like it's a reunion. Yeah, they're all coming back to Riverdale. It's kind of got like I'm rereading it of all things, and so yeah. that's got that whole like Buddy is coming back to yeah, town yeah. and reuniting. So it has that going on. A little without, like uh, what is it a big squeeze? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The big chill. The chill. Yeah. Yeah. Big squeeze. So it was a big yeah, squeeze. That was the the big squeeze is uh. Is that the Michael Keaton movie? Anyway, I don't know. I'm thinking yeah. about squeeze the band now, but um, <laughs> the big show. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Band. But um, it's been on the program before, actually. Oh, really? So we so we're watching this movie, and it, you know, your heart just sinks because it doesn't didn't capture any of the charm yeah. or humor or yeah anything. And so Absolutely. I think that was my first kind of encounter with wow. So, so, but the sadness was was disappointment on your end. Yeah, not just the, disappointment. Uh, okay. Yeah, because I mean, they're interesting. It's so funny that we're talking about this right now. Because <laughs> yeah. I was just having a conversation. I was having like a very like heartfelt conversation with a friend about the. Do you remember the movie Broadcast News? Yes, James Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about that movie in terms of uh, in terms of like relationships and in terms of the fact that it's um, really like the, Ar- the Archie movie in a weird way played upon this, but the fact that. Um, you know, when you're going through a relationship and you feel like it's kind of like the most profound thing ever. Right. And then like in hindsight, and there's this moment in that movie where like, you know, there's this, it's basically like a triangle. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the end of the movie, they flash forward and like Albert Brooks's character is happily married. Right. And the thing about the Archie movie is it was just like, and they'd all kind of just moved on. Yeah. And it was really sad in that regard yeah. because you always saw, you're reading these comics and you feel like, you know, eventually He's going to choose between Betty or Veronica. Yeah, exactly. They'll get married, and something magical will happen. But it was the kind movie of an interesting was, choice, though, yeah. that they just they they just didn't do either. 
Yeah, and it's probably fresher for you because I haven't watched it yeah. since then. But um, you're going to go back and watch it. Yeah, now, now I'm going to go back and watch it because it because they had two choices and they took a third choice. Right, which is interesting now yeah. looking back from a storytelling perspective. Um, but yeah, I just remember that hitting me, and yeah. I, I kept reading comics, obviously, but sure. it was just such a kind of punch in the gut. <laughs> but it's but I mean that's I don't want to make I don't you know it's not a good it's not a good movie, but I mean there there are some interesting choices and the fact that like. You know, maybe, and, and and I think you're right that that Wade is doing this. I mean, I haven't kept up on it too much, but I, you mm-hmm. know, I read I read it a little bit, and and I assume to some degree the the TV show will do this, although in a like heightened melodramatic fashion, right? That might not be so sustained, but it is interesting to take those characters, and I think it's very clear that the, the goal of producers were, was to make it as real as possible, yeah, and doing so like. There's a, it's kind of depressing. Yeah, I think the intent may have been great, and I think the execution probably was not as great, and that's always the challenge of any kind of art. You yeah. go in with the best intentions, and maybe you have the best designs, and it's then it just becomes a matter of craft, you know. But but, but I, I guess you know sort of what I'm getting at in, in terms of um, doing, you know, detective stories or, or crime novels right. is that you need. I mean, you have to have a like I mean that, that's kind of like one of the finding qualities of the genre is that you have to have a very flawed protagonist right, right? I mean is it and wh- what is what does that go back to I mean is it just not interesting to watch I don't know James Bond for example right James Bond yeah, not is a an big example Bond guy, yeah. but he and he's an example of like pretty much a perfect person right the Batman you know how type. things are gonna yeah yeah and I but Batman's Batman's at least got Batman's got a baked in not flaw trauma yeah, childhood trauma, and yeah, Bond doesn't have that. He doesn't really have. Maybe he does. I haven't read it. An origin story that defines him. I think he's just always been this kind yeah. of kick-ass secret. But it's agent. not like, as far as I know, that his parents were murdered. Right. Yeah. It's not not something that's not profound. Epic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's just kind of good at what he does. Um, yeah. For me, the the most interesting protagonists were flawed, especially yeah. in detective fiction. Like you have, um, you know, I said Matt Scudder, who who like Pete is an alcoholic, and you kind of watch him progress and get sober. Um, and even Marlowe, you know, as he's such an archetype, but he's mm-hmm. still screwed up. He probably yeah. drinks too much. He's got he, his mouth gets him in trouble a lot. Um, he he's kind of like this uh, shining knight, or kind of you know he does the honorable thing, but maybe not the best way. Mm. Um, and I, those were the characters that appealed to me. Or George Pelicanos, his first three books, the the Nick Stefanos books, those are probably the closest in in tone to the Pete books, I think, and he, he probably does it a lot better than I did, but um, his protagonist is a bartender, he's a, kind of a screw-up, he's a dropout, and he just kind of gets pulled into this. And I think yeah. that's, that's to me, it, I thought, how would I get involved in this? How would I start finding a missing person? It's probably because somebody would ask me to. Just And then I get pulled in, and you just it becomes its own thing, kind of the same way we make career changes. It's not always this linear thing mm-hmm. where a wizard appears and says, you are magically now this person. Um, there, there's also this interesting element of it, too, um, you know, that I've, I, I, I obviously don't follow the, the genre as closely mm-hmm. as you do, but that I've seen played out. I mean, I think I think a good example, a real-life example of this, um, we had uh, Starly Kine on the show. Oh, yeah. I love that podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've talked to a few people who've tried this. I had a friend, uh, my friend Martha in um, Portland, writes zines, and mm-hmm. she like decided she was going to get her PI license. It didn't work out. It was really crappy, and it turns out that like the but reality did you get it, or? is well, she did, but it turns out the reality is like having a PI license or that you have to like you know hunt down like bad landlords. It's just not a lot of fun. But there is an interesting element of it, and I think I don't know. I, I think maybe a reason why you can have these flawed characters and the reason why it works out so well is because it's sort of this thing that you can kind of ease into, that you can do on the side, you know? Right. The, the mysteries are just such a part of life that yeah. you can almost kind of fall into it in a sense. Yeah, and I think um, part of it for me was also to show that it's not it's not so black and white. It's not, yeah. for these characters, it, there's got to be a lot of gray, gray to it. Um at the end of the first book, there's a hope that, you know, Pete's gotten his life together. And and with the second book, I really wanted to show that just because maybe this P.I. thing is progressing, it doesn't mean that his personal life is progressing. And there's a lot of, um, just a lot of bumbling around that we all do. And, uh, you know, obviously as 
like you said, going back to the tropes, you still need a plot. You still need a protagonist. You need a villain, and you need to hit certain notes to make it a successful like crime novel. But I, I really wanted to show his evolution with each book, which I, I feel like series characters have two tracks. They're the ones where they're kind of James Bondish, and they yeah. don't change from book to book. And then there are others like Nick Stefanos or Matt Scudder or Laura Lipman writes these Tess Monahan books in Baltimore. Um, she changes from book to book. By the, if you read the most recent book, she's got a kid and she's married and she's a much more kind of settled. And the first book, she's still trying to figure out what she's going to do. So I, I really wanted it to be more about a progression and less about uh, the case of the week, like Law but, and Order. But, but that's, I mean, that's interesting. It's actually something I was, I was going to ask you. You know, you, you know, and you, you said that the, the change from the first book to the second book is this kind of idea that he's gotten his life together, but probably kind of hasn't. And and versus, um, you know, her book where you're describing somebody who maybe does like have is leading like a pretty okay life, and it's just, I mean, that's the the question. You know, do you, is part of having a flawed character that they're just kind of unhappy? I mean, yeah. it's, that just seems to be such a a key part of all of these detective books is there they have to be like fundamentally unfulfilled yeah and that's the challenge i mean at what point like and it's also how much can this character take you know yeah. um i think by choosing that path the more kind of organic growing evolving path you also i think limit the number of episodes you can really do because at a certain point he can't save the city for the 10th time mm. you know it's just not feasible if he were if he has half a brain he'd probably say i'm kind of out of this business i've yeah. seen people die i've been injured blah 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 um but I think that makes those few limited episodes much more entertaining um, just because you feel like you're growing along with the character. And, and that just may just be me. But the whole point for me was I wanted to do stuff that I would probably want to read. It's, it's funny. I, I, I used to watch a lot of Dragon Ball. Oh, really? <laughs> um, and, you know, the thing about that, about that series is in order for it to work, things just have to constantly get bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. It's the same thing with uh, superhero comics, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't... Like, what good is Superman without a Lex Luthor, right? I mean, he's right. just a... Like, if he's fighting petty crime, he's wasted. Yeah. And and, and that's... I mean, you can't... When, when, when you take a larger step like that, when you move from, you know, a small to a large crime to, like you said, saving the city, like, you know... Mm-hmm. From a, a attention standpoint, from a, a, a reader's attention standpoint, um, you have to keep upping the stakes, right? I mean, you can't. Yeah, you really have to up the stakes, back. and then he's also you've also got to you accumulate baggage, yeah. Like in life, I mean, by the third, I'm working on the third book now. I'm like so immersed in it. I'm I can see the end of the tunnel almost. Um, and by the third book, he's already every interaction he has, people know him now. They're like, mm. "Oh, you're the guy that got this guy," or yeah. "I read about you here," and I have to do yeah. that because I feel like I'd be disingenuous if I didn't. Um, but at you know, you're going to reach a point by book ten or twelve where it just doesn't seem feasible. So um, that's what I'm grappling with too. Like, how much further can I go? What, num- what number are you on? Right now? I'm on three now, okay. and I've mapped out till five. Okay. So I think we'll see where we're at at five. Yeah, but I mean that's. Five's a good number. I yeah. mean, you don't you don't want to be married necessarily to the same character forever, right? right? Yeah, and and then you see authors like Laura Lipman. She's done like fifteen plus uh, Tess Monahan books. Yeah, and so she's found a way to keep it going. I, I haven't figured it out yet, and it's probably early enough that I still have time. <laughs> so where where are you? Um, I mean, where are you at with this? I mean, it sounds like you've had a, some success with the with the last book. I mean, it's it, it seems like it it's exceeded your expectations yeah definitely i think uh you know the attention it got was great and i think it got some really strong reviews and i'm just happy i'm happy that yeah. you know uh when i moved over silent city was first published by uh Kadoras press in 2013 and that was pretty small small print run so when i moved over to polis books which is the current publisher mm-hmm. they very smartly said we're going to republish the first one just so they're kind of synergized sure. and they come out Silent City re they reprinted Silent City and it came out a month before mm-hmm. the new book Down the Darkest Street and I think that really helped people kind of springboard into the sure. series and um, you know you start promoting the second book and then you can always say the first one's out there and that's like my marketing brain but um, creatively I think the response has been good I feel like it kind of Pete arrived with this book you know people really have a sense of him now and it, it, he's he's on a playing field with all the other characters and authors I think um which sounds kind of vague, but um, 
it was just gratifying to see the response because as a writer, you never know. Like you're just sitting in the dark on your own, kind of typing away and hoping that people respond to the work. And, and it had been a while. Mm-hmm. I think it had been like three years since yeah. Silent City originally came out. So, um, and a lot of that was because behind the scenes stuff was happening. You know, I wanted a bigger platform. I wanted a, a, a better way to get the books out there. So it, it didn't. The second book didn't come out as quickly as. As, as I would have probably originally liked, but it, it all worked out for the best because they repu- repackaged the first one, then you have the second one, and now the third one's coming out next year. So it's kind of boom, 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 which is good. Just, you know, I, I obviously know you as a, a PR guy mm-hmm. for a couple of Right, right, yeah. D- DC a long time ago. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, however many years ago it was, like we were having drinks and you, like, casually mentioned that you were going down, um, I think it was in Florida, to... Uh, like a crime fiction oh, right. uh, convention or something like that, and there and just this whole different side element of you that I didn't know about, and it's you know it's like you were almost like a like a like a closeted mystery writer early on. It was just, yeah, no, it was kind of like the secret thing because when I first moved to New York, um, and part of the reason why I set the books in Miami was because I was just really homesick, and yeah. it was ten years ago now that I started writing Silent City, but I was writing it kind of to get that out of my system to write about my hometown. But also for something to do, I think the, the first year in New York, I think, is the hardest for anyone. Sure. I think it's just you're, you're overwhelmed by people, by sounds, and by... Yeah, just trying to find your way around. Yeah, you're just trying to navigate. And uh, as social and as full of people as New York can be, it can also be really lonely. Because mm-hmm. you're just... You know, for me, it was. Um, and so that first year was really about finding my way in New York. But that also involved a lot of searching through where I was from. Um, and so that created that second life, almost, because um, I was reading a lot of mysteries, I think. And also, um, part of it is when your hobby becomes your job, it's not as much fun mm. to do for fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't reading as much, as many comics for pleasure. I mean, at DC, you get a whole stack of every book that's published, yeah. and, so, and that's work, which yeah. it should be, because it's your job. You're getting paid for it. But that also kind but, of... But it's also just like, you know, as much as I like comics, nobody should be forced to read every... Right. It just becomes <laughs> overwhelming. And so as a way to blow off steam... And this is this is just kind of a habit I have is turning my hobbies into some kind of career for yeah. better or worse. And so I start reading. I had always liked mysteries, but then I started reading them, you know, a little bit more fanatically. And I was like, well, let me just try to mm-hmm. do one. Um, and it just turned out to work, which was great. And what's interesting because I, I and, until we had this conversation, I had just always assumed that that was something that was kind of in the background, and that you know the comics thing came up, but you always wanted to do it. So what? So, you know, taking it back a couple steps, I mean, did you get into comics PR because you wanted to make comics? Was that the original plan? Um, no, it was a little more organic. I think, you know, I was I have a journalism background and so and and I did a lot of comics journalism. So I worked at Newsarama for a long time and I, I worked at Wizard. That was the first time I moved to New York, but it's kind of uh you know, it wasn't New York City, it was upstate, a little more upstate where their offices were. And um so I always knew I wanted to work in comics professionally, and, and it became kind of a comics journalism mm-hmm. career. Um, and I, when I went back to Miami, I started reviewing graphic novels for the Miami Herald, and that's how I got connected with DC, because they'd send you books for review. And I saw that they had an opening, and that's where I got in touch with the head of publicity at the time. Is it David? David, yeah. yeah, David Hyde. And then... Um, and then I just said, sure, I'll fly up to New York and interview. And I was next thing I know, I'm sitting in Paul Levitz's office. <laughs> and I'm like, this is happening. And that's when I really felt like, okay, I'm part of comics. Now, Paul Levitz is exactly who you want to meet in a situation yeah. like that, right? I mean, and he was awesome. He was, what, like 15 or something? Yeah, and he was. He gave very honest and like genuine advice yeah. about not just comics or DC, but just about life. And uh, I thought that was really heartwarming and... So there was never, like, an ulterior motive to write comics, so I always wanted to write them. Um, I also knew that DC was very, and is, very corporate about it. You know, if you're here as a publicist, you're not also going to be writing Suicide Squad. You know, it it doesn't bleed that way. Um, And then when I got to Archie, I think that opportunity was a little bit more present. Um, And even that was kind of random. Like, I think John Goldwater, our CEO, said, you know, Gene Simmons wants to do some Kiss comics. And I said, okay, can I write them? And it's one of the few times I allowed myself to just interject my writing desires at work. Was Archie, when he first got there, I mean, obviously, again, it's undergone a a transformation. But was that a hard jump to make from the standpoint of... um you know, I mean, you know, DC has always DC has always maintained a level of success, right? And, and obviously, it's cyclical. But like, Superman and Batman, 
are evergreen. Yeah. You know, moving to, to Archie, which, you know, I mean, you know, in a sense is like so such a legacy mm-hmm. book, uh, uh, such a legacy publisher. And I, I, and I get the you know feeling that around the time that you left, it was like maybe not mm-hmm. the best time to, to join on. You know, they were kind of like writing then maybe the next wave. But I mean, was that was that a hard jump to make? I mean, it felt did it feel like, you know, did it just kind of feel like a publisher that was doing digests and just kind of living off of these old characters? No, I think when I got there, it was the beginning of the early part of what John Goldwater Mm -hmm. has now achieved, which is, you know, there was a point where people would say, Archie, are you still publishing that? Yeah. Like, is that still happening? Um, And now I think people are much more aware of the brand. They call it a rebuilding in sports, right? Yeah, yeah. You take a year or two off to trade all your prospects. Yeah, the new GM had arrived and was assessing the roster. And I think when I got there, they'd just done the wedding, which was, you know, um, Mm. Archie marries Betty and Archie marries Veronica. And then they just unveiled Kevin Keller, who was the first gay character in Riverdale, which was a huge... Huge thing, and I remember looking at the news as it came through when I was at DC, and I was like, "Wow, you know, I would have probably played that a little differently in terms of how it was announced." Mm. Um, not to criticize, it was just kind of like, "Oh, that's a huge thing." Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things for me coming in in terms of perception was, to me, Archie was an icon, comic character, in the same way that Batman and Superman are to a lot of people, and were to me too. Um, but it was more about having people understand that this character that's been around 75 years is as as important. It's yeah. such a huge brand, and it's such a... Everyone knows Archie, Benny, and Veronica. They may not know that he's a comic character. They may not know a specific story or that Dan DiCarlo drew it. or you know They, they don't mm-hmm. get that far in the weeds. But in terms of what he is, people know. The awareness is huge. So tapping into that um, from a publicity standpoint really amplified anything we were doing. But it's hard, you know, somebody looking... From, from from the outside and somebody who like covered a lot of that, mm-hmm. it's hard not to get caught up in a lot of these gimmicky ideas, right? Of like taking, you know, and, and part of the appeal of the gimmick is like we've got this really iconic character and things are about to change forever. And it, you know, it definitely seemed like part of the ramp up to where they are right now was there were a lot of those. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned a few of them, like right. weddings and death and like all these yeah and i think the only way you can survive that beyond you know you get beyond the gimmick if the content is good you know and if it's self-aware like archie meets kiss is a pretty bizarre idea and even you know coming into it as a sharknado yeah but if you read the books they're pretty funny i mean sabrina gets eaten by a shark like a few pages in so um and if the i think if the content wasn't good then a lot of this would fall flat uh, and for the most part, I think the company's batting average is pretty high. Yeah. In terms, but, but, but there isn't there isn't a there there wasn't ever a sense that you felt like you were kind of um, leaning too heavily on those or. You know, if if we didn't have the new Riverdale stuff, I would say maybe. Yeah. But I think there was always kind of a, a main current of just quality. Yeah. Like you know, we want these books to be good and we want them to be entertaining, and obviously we would like them to sell. Like, but but Sharknado was never going to be a flagship series, right? It was always kind of a fun one-off that did really well, and a lot of people. And if you like Sharknado and you like Archie, you'll buy it and enjoy sure. it. And it it doesn't. I don't think it diminishes anything else. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people thought that about Afterlife at first. Yeah. They're like, oh, zombies and Archie, that's just some wacky sure. thing. But when you read it, it's a really creepy yeah. horror story like told by two people who are obsessed with the genre, which it's, it's kind of the, the best kind of mashup. Um, I don't know if you've read like Ben Winters' uh, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, but that. Oh no, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. maybe not that one, but you yeah, know, yeah. those those kind of literary mashups. Some yeah, are yeah. really good. Yeah. Um, and I think that's how Afterlife works. And I think that's you get them in the door with the gimmick, mm-hmm. and then they stay and realize I, I enjoy this. Did you did you work directly with Gene Simmons? I did. I did a signing oh, with God. him and Paul Stanley. It was really bizarre. But and 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 you but you collaborated with him on the book. It was really more like a licensor licensee relationship. Okay. I, he had a, you know he knew John and he said I want to do an Archie meets Kiss book. Yeah. And John said sure. And then I came in as a writer and kind of project manager. Um, and so I sent him the pitch, and I said, this is what I'd like to do. And he responded with, this is great. That was okay. kind of that the extent it. of it. Okay. And I, God, I was the- hoping he had some good Gene Simmons stories for me. No, nothing. He was actually super easy to work with. And, and even at the signing, yeah. which is 
obviously people are there for them, for Gene and Paul. And, sure. and there are, it was in L.A. Um, at Meltdown, and Dan Parent and I are there yeah. at the end of the table looking pretty Dan's sheepish. Yeah, Dan's yeah. the artist, Dan Parent. Um, but he was very gracious. He was like, this is Alex. He's the writer of the book. This is Dan, the artist. Like, please get them to sign your book, too. So it was like, wow. I just, I, I think that that would be the life of just waking up, you know, one morning and deciding that you wanted to kiss crossover for your yeah. <laughs> your band or your character. And then, yeah, it was really surreal. Like if, you know, um, it was just such a bizarre thing to think was part of my career, you know, and, yeah. and doing the Ramones thing now, it's, it's kind of becoming its own thing. Like what, what's the story behind that? Uh, Matt Rosenberg, who, uh, Write stuff for Marvel, yeah. Black Mass Studios. He's an old friend of mine, and he has a connection with the Ramones camp, with the the, the estates. Yeah. And he reached out to me and said, would you guys want to do this? God, it's all estates now, isn't it? That's yeah, so depressing. Yeah, that's a sad thing. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, there's a lot of overlap. I think the Ramones are really tapped into comics, you know, yeah. f- dating back from when they started. Sure. And the Archies are all about music and rock and roll. And um, I think if done right, it could... At the time, I thought this could be really interesting. So I, I walked down and talked to John, and he said, yeah, definitely, we'd love to do it. And so after that, it was pretty easy. It was just a matter of figuring out the logistics. Like, how do you get the yeah. Archies to interact with the Ramones? And so time travel, obviously. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Are you, have you, uh, you know the band The Riverdales? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a like kind of a perfect crossover. Intersection, yeah. They kind of sound exactly like the Ramones, you know? Yeah, they do. I have to listen to them a little yeah. more. They're, yeah. they're basically like Ramones cover, cover band as <laughs> Maybe you should reach out to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's the uh, the Screeching Weasel guys. Um, so wait, so was was Kiss? Was that your first foray into writing comics? No, I'd okay. written, I wrote a short story for their, uh, you know, DC used to do these Halloween specials mm-hmm. where you know it was a bunch of up and coming talent, each yeah. of them writing a story, and I wrote a ten page, uh, maybe like eight to ten pager for that, and that was fun. It was a, the Flash was in it, so it was cool. It was and it was really an education. I got to work with Mike Martz, who's now like the head of AfterShock Comics, but longtime Marvel editor, a longtime DC editor, and he kind of taught me the tools of you know scripting yeah. and and, uh, and stuff like that. And then once I got to Archie, I got to write a few one offs. I wrote this one Comic Con where they go to Comic Con and Jughead is dressed as Spock and Archie is dressed as Pure Heart. Um, and then Kiss was the next big. That was my first big yeah. kind of event comic. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does. It still sounds like you're kind of thrown into it. I mean, in a way. I mean, that's a pretty. It was. It was. It, it was really high profile at the time. Yeah, it got a, a lot of attention, yeah. and I mean, Kiss promoted it pretty heavily. We promoted it pretty heavily, and I think it was so early on that it, it was still really novel for Archie yeah. to interact with any other brand because I think the only crossover before that that was of note was Archie Punisher and so that, that's kind of this holy grail of wacky yeah. crossovers and um, I know when we announced Archie Kiss everyone was like holy hell what <laughs> really and I think we tapped into that a little bit with like Archie Predator and stuff like yeah. that but um, I feel and maybe I'm biased obviously but Archie Kiss was the first one to kind of kick that door down again since Punisher which was in the 80s I think or early 90s could, could you see yourself uh, really throwing yourself into a kind of a, a flagship title? Or could you see yourself having that be your main thing? Um, you mean one-offs, kind of wacky one-offs versus... No, no, I mean just like really like uh, writing a writing comics as being a, kind of a full-time gig. Yeah, I think I'm open to it. I mean, it's, I'm not... I have pitches and stuff. My agent's shopping stuff around... Um, I think it's just a question of time. Like, yeah. obviously, the novels are a big priority for me, and I really want those to succeed. And I'm open to doing comic stuff. And Archie, obviously, is great because I can just walk down the hall and say, I, I'd like to do this. Yeah. But there's also a balance that you want to strike because I'm an executive at the company. I'm the head of publicity. So I always have, I always feel weird promoting my own writing, and I, I don't want it to be a disservice to the mm-hmm. talent I'm working with. Like, Giselle, the artist on Archie Ramones, is amazing, and Matt is amazing. Um, but then I also feel weird promoting myself. So that's just something I need to get over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you also, I mean, as we were talking about at the top, you also, you know, have a human being depending on you now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which obviously has changed the calculus if you were at any point um, wanting to just dive completely into writing these books, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's now even more important that you kind of, that you keep that really steady job going. Oh, yeah, and it's, you know, the job is fun. I, you know, the 
the thing about writing is it's also a very solitary existence, whereas publicity is the other end of yeah. the spectrum. You're always interacting with people, um, and you're always creating a narrative. And I'm actually really proud of the narrative of Archie. I think over the last seven or eight years, Archie's gone from that brand that you kind of feel is nostalgic, yeah. almost in a classic media type way, like sure. retro. To like now. You might as well have been Richie Rich at right. that point. Yeah, but that kind of mentality, whereas yeah. now the words you hear tied into Archie are progressive, forward-thinking, mm-hmm. nimble. Um, and I think that's a big testament to what John has done. But I think part of the job of a publicist is to, is to amplify the actions and kind of create the story. Um, you know, you get these disparate things and put them together and create a narrative, um, which sounds much more uh, manipulative than it really is. But 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 you ha- but you know the only way <clears throat> I think the only way the company was going to kind of survive the way it had, and the only way that you, as a, a publicist at that during that transitional mm-hmm. time, were going to get it onto people's radar was by making, you know, I mean by by finding a way onto the Today Show where they they right. could say, hey, remember Archie? Like yeah. here's a wacky thing that's happening. But but there's no there's no other way that you're possibly going to get. An arch, a new Archie series onto those without there being some kind of big dramatic thing that would make the mainstream media talk Yeah, about no, it. you have to make noise. And I think something, our biggest story probably ever was the death of Archie. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, you know, I look at that now and I'm like, I don't know if we'll ever attain that level of just yeah. pure mainstream attention. Um, and that was because it was so perfectly crafted for a mainstream reporter because mm-hmm. it's an iconic comic book character yeah. or a character, death, Violence, and also the kind of overarching meta commentary of innocence lost, yeah. and uh, and the the, uh, the the gay character plays into it as right. well. Yeah, I mean, and so you have and gun control, and, yeah. and you know it just kind of was this synergy of culture all in one comic book. Um, but yeah, I think for Archie, unlike like you were saying, DC and Marvel, they have they're kind of running. They could go quiet and still hit the beats that they want to hit yeah. in terms of finances and story. But we're a little smaller, and we have to kind of wave our hands and remind people that we exist. Even 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 if they're not saying, oh, they still publish that, now they know we're there, but we still have to jump up and scream and say, hey, we're doing this now. To, to, to the extent that people consider, like, LGBT issues political, I mean, I guess they are, but, you know, if you're, if I, how to couch this. So if you're, if you're you know, if you're of a certain political point of view, um, you see those things as being necessarily political, right? Right. And you see them as being, in a sense, infringing upon your belief system. Certainly, you mentioned gun control. That's that's an even bigger... I mean, that absolutely is political. Right. Um, when you're dealing with such a, an iconic character, I mean, in a sense, aren't you kind of playing with fire to be dealing with those things that people, like, really consider, consider Americana? These are the things that, like, people feel like their way of life is being encroached upon by you know bringing in these real world issues. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's always blowback. I think though I think like Kevin Keller when Kevin came out, I wasn't at the company, but John tells a story. Uh, you know, there were a few people that said, you know, I'm canceling my subscription. Mm. But if you multiply that by a thousand, yeah. that was the people that was the number of people that were like, this is awesome. And I think his viewpoint is to him and to the company, Americana is inclus- inclusiveness and yeah. Riverdale is for everyone. And Riverdale is a welcoming place. Um, so I think it's perceptional. There's always going to be blowback every time we make any kind of decision along those lines. So I think it's it's a matter of how confident are you in what you're doing and where does it come from? And I think for the most part, all these story decisions have been organic. Even even the death of Archie, it was like the end of that series. It's this alternate universe where Archie is an adult and how else could you end that book? It's but, called Life with Archie. But but is it but is it um you know, is, is it uh, sort of bringing the character into the real world? Um, is it, I mean, I, I, I've got to imagine it, a degree of it is feeling like there are certain things that the writer wants to tackle, and maybe this is a format to do it, or mm. is it just like Archie can't just exist in this vacuum, completely devoid of reality, that like there are a lot of gay people out there in the world, yeah. so it makes sense that there would be one in Riverdale. And I think the second, or the, you know, the moment you start to say Riverdale is today, is happening today, as yeah. opposed to this kind of Pleasantville 50s city, you have to deal with that stuff, yeah. because otherwise you'd be disingenuous. And I think um, 
all iterations of Archie still exist. And uh, you know, if you don't hmm. like, if you don't like Afterlife, that is interesting. That is an interesting. It's thing. like there's an Archie multiverse. Because I, I'm guessing that when the uh, when, when the Wade stuff was happening, when all of that, I don't know what you're if you call it like a reboot. I, hmm. I don't know what you term it, but yeah. when that was happening, I mean, I'm sure that I, 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 I remember some of this that there was a fear that like, oh all the digest stuff is going away like are we going to lose archie is this what right because because what actually yeah no and, and remember distinctly now like what happened is um you guys put the artwork out there and everyone's like is like oh fuck this is just right right, right. <laughs> this yeah. is what archie is react now. with fear as yeah. opposed to like that like that you know that it's a complete reboot of everything and that the things that they liked aren't going to be around anymore yeah and i think once we drill down a little bit and kind of explain what it was yeah. that we're we're not taking anything away. If anything, we're adding to the tapestry of Archie. Um, that kind of quelled that a little bit because traditional Archie is still there. It's still in the digest. It's still in the supermarkets, and you can get it, and you can read it yeah. and enjoy it. And there's new stories being produced. So um, I think once that came became clear, that calmed people down a little bit. But there's always that reaction, and, and it happens. I, it's, it's funny because we start to experience things that you see the bigger companies deal with too, like yeah. whenever Superman gets a new costume or whenever they relaunch Wonder Woman or there's an, a twist in the way they want their characters to be. And that and that really, I mean, that puts things into perspective in, in, in a nice way mm-hmm. in, from the standpoint of, like, you know, uh, we, we cover a lot of Facebook on our site and right. the fact that, like, people have as visceral reaction when Facebook changes the UI around a little bit as, you know, to whatever, I don't know, like Donald Trump says or something like right, that right, to right. them, it's sort of on the same level and it has the same, it gets the same attention in Or the you see cycle. people posting like, I want my timeline in order, yeah. you know, like these... But, but that puts it into perspective that like a, a change in a costume gets as much attention from people as something more profound, really. Right. And I think part of that is also we're, we're in a, we live in a time where everyone has a microphone, yeah. which is fine. I think it's great. I think everyone can say whatever, yeah, we have them. <laughs> Literally, it's but, um, microphones. I think it really exacerbates how strongly people feel about yeah. certain things. And you have a platform and you can say it and, you know, everyone's filters are different. Well, getting back to the, the – I'm sorry we we're, like, hammering Archie so much. No, it's now fine. I'm, like, super fascinated yeah, yeah. by all this. Um, well, like, it's funny. Like, I don't think that we've ever sat down and talked about Archie before, no. which is kind of hilarious. Cause, um, so Kevin Keller. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, introducing this gay character into Riverdale. Um is in a way uh, kind of an easier way into it because Jughead easily could have been gay, right? <laughs> so, so, but but you know, and that would have been it would have been a very different approach to versus introducing a new character in, um, you know, like in the same way that uh, I can't remember the name of the African American character who's in there, a Chuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was kind of introduced in like a similar way, and like not too long after that, it seems like uh, Chuck was around in the seventies. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think what you're saying, what to your point, um, I think it just was a little bit clearer to just introduce a new character. Yeah, but but, it, but like adding it, but it would have been, but it, but it not not even clarity so much as like again the way that people get protective about these characters, right? Like the blowback would have been very different if you had taken a character people knew and had. Yeah, because then it would have been you're tinkering with the past as opposed to adding. Yeah. Um, and and pe- yeah, exactly. People would have felt like this would somehow would have like retroactively. It's kind of like the Sulu thing with Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. That's, um, that's an interesting. And that, that, is, was, that was interesting, interesting because one. yeah, because he is gay. Yeah, and then George Takei yeah. comes out against it, and that was very. You know, yeah. I don't think that's how people expected him to no, react. No, everyone expected him to. I think Simon Pegg expected him to be excited about right, it. Right, right. Though, I guess they were having back-channel communications before, so yeah. I think they probably knew he wasn't on board. Um, but yeah, I think you, you change the dynamic when it's you're altering the history of a pre-existing character as opposed to adding a new character. And I, I, don't, I wasn't in the room when they came up with Kevin, um, but I imagine that probably played a part in it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we should get back to your book. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Uh, so, 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 like, so, you know, like I was saying, um, the first, the first I heard about this sort of fascination of yours was that you're going to this, uh, this, this conference, convention. yeah. And I didn't like that's that's a world I didn't even know existed. I mean, obviously, like I knew these things were big. You know, they certainly have a very big presence. Yeah, in, no, like, it, in yeah. airports. Yeah, but, but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of sort of going to one of those, I mean, of course it exists, right? And it, it must have been pretty early. I, I probably had no agent. Had, yeah. I had my book, and I was just trying to, like, connect with people. So, you had, so, so the, book was, the book was written for a while? Yeah, okay. I had written it. I was really just kind of pecking away at it after work. And it was, like, even, like, reading the mysteries, it was kind of a release, like, just doing something mm-hmm. else. And I had no idea. I, I started reading a lot of books about writing. I mean, I'd written stuff before, like comic stuff yeah. and... and tried my hand at some short fiction but this was the first time that it started as a short story and then it just kept evolving because mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the character um, and yeah so the book was written and I was shopping it around and so I think when we talked I was going to San Francisco or something or St. Louis or um, to BoucherCon which is mm-hmm. like kind of the Comic Con the big Comic Con of hmm. crime fiction um, what is what's it like I mean is it is how close how close is it parallel a, a Comic Con you know, it's smaller. You're you're in Nobody's a hotel. Dressed up like Marlo. Yeah, there's no costumes. There's no. You're, there's <laughs> people no, are walking around in trench coats or yeah, like there's Kermit no, like, Marlowe cosplay. <laughs> um, it's a lot more low key, but yeah. it's and it's a little more author centric. Though it is a fan. Is it kind of like almost businessy? It's like a. I think you can probably accomplish more business yeah. at BoucherCon than you could at sure. You know, San Diego Comic Con is this. You're in a different world for it's a week a and a half. Fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just. Last this one that just passed was they're always more exhausting and I don't know if it's because I get older or because sure. it just gets bigger. Yeah. Um, but by the end of it, I felt like luckily I had scheduled a vacation right after, so I got to roll into vacation. Enjoy San Diego for a little yeah, while. Yeah, I got I had tacked on like a mystery event to the, the day after, but it's it's such an all encompassing thing that you just want to survive. Mm. Whereas my first BoucherCon, um, I found I had little lulls of time. I could actually go out and get lunch and like kind of sit and look at the panels. Like I don't, I don't go to any Comic Con panels. Yeah. I go to the Archie panels yeah, yeah. and I go to the panels that I'm like required by law to go to. But not, I don't see it as a, a fun event. I mean, it's fun, but I don't see it as it's not a personally fun thing. It's work. Um, whereas BoucherCon was this kind of thing I was doing on my own dime, you know, for my own entertainment, and that was a new way to experience a convention for me. Were, were you? Were you were you involved in this community prior to, to going to that? I mean, is it can you just can you just kind of like write a, the book in a, a vacuum, or is it important that you're kind of connected to what's going on in that world? I think you could if it's and if the book is great, it yeah. will resonate. But for me, I'm just a social person. So the second I started writing, I mean, I already had authors that I knew and I wanted to connect with, and thankfully through comics, I knew a lot of authors that were also mystery writers. Like Dwayne Swarzynski was writing for. I think he was writing for Marvel or DC and we kind of knew each other and you know you get to know people through Twitter and stuff so I already had kind of a network of people that I knew um, like Greg Rucka is a good friend of mine and, sure. and I, I first met him while working at DC and he's also got a really long career as a yeah. novelist um, and so I got to pick their brains a little bit and just see what the path was um, and that was really helpful because otherwise I would have been flying blind you know I had no idea that you needed an agent or yeah. that um where or that BoucherCon even existed like you. I was like, what is that? And so um, it was kind of a lark to go, but I knew enough people in the industry. Um, there's this magazine called Crime Spree Magazine, which is kind of like the wizard magazine of crime fiction. It's like this, <laughs> this couple of John... I'm pretty sure it doesn't say that on It's the much better. It's, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, it's... but yeah, it's, it's not a price guide like, for... Uh... No, there's no price guide, but it's, it's, it's very much a fan creation. Like John and Ruth Jordan... Yeah started the magazine and they're fans of comics or fans of you know crime fiction movies yeah. and uh, so I got to know them and John was actually a really good sounding board I would say you know I'm thinking about writing this he's like send it to me I'll read it and to get his validation like this was pretty good that's when I really thought okay maybe this is not just something I'm doing in the dark as a lark you know it can actually become something I'm, I'm curious about just sort of the state of, of, of that industry you know and, and I think that one of the appeals of one of the nice things is that, um, you know, it, a lot of it is pulp and that's fine. Like, yeah. it's, it's almost like appreciated. It's like, it's like, you know, not everything has to be this great work of art, which is, which is great. Right. right. I mean, it's just the thing that you read to enjoy versus like mm-hmm. this, um, and, and you know this better than anyone as someone who's worked at both DC and Archie, right. but there's always been, uh, at least as long as we've been involved, there's always been this kind of crisis of competence in comics with this, this con- cons- constant need to prove yourself and to tell people that it's like a legitimate art form. And yeah. It's not just pulp. Um, has it, the same thing. You see the same it, thing in crime it, fiction. I think there's, you know, there's this constant struggle to a friend of mine who's a pretty noted crime fiction critic and author. You know, she, she always 
hates when anyone says elevates the genre or yeah. you know goes beyond the yeah, genre yeah, yeah, because yeah. you should be happy that you're in the genre you know yeah. the, the genre doesn't limit you it is it's just what you've chosen to write and i think that's similar to comics it's like you want to fight that stigma of oh it's just comics but that stigma is self-imposed like if you do the work and it's of quality then it's going to be what it is but so 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 you know contextualize this a little bit for me so, you know like look at comics it's um for you know the real like 1985 is a pretty good place to delineate right. as far as like legitimacy goes mm-hmm. you know this is like in a two-year period this is uh mouse watchman uh the dark knight mm-hmm. all came out right around each right. other right so that's um that's that point where it that's sort of really goes here, from yeah. you know from pulp to a lot of to a lot of people um into you know mainstream you know Legitimacy maybe is a more even, even more right. recent occurrence. Um, you know, now it's just like pop culture, right? So wh- right. where is where where is crime fiction on that continuum? I don't know if there was a specific year like that. I think, um, but that just could be an indication that it just hasn't maybe hit that yet, right? You know, I find that there's it, it's your definition of crime fiction like something like Gone Girl was mm. such a pop culture yeah. sensation but that's a crime fiction novel sure but it's not um, you know didn't win a Pulitzer you know what I mean it's right. not you know it's, it's, it's but the, the Pulitzer Prize winner mm. also won the Edgar Award which is like the best crime novel okay. so that that to me is kind yeah, of yeah. maybe it's happening now so, so maybe uh, yeah or maybe it just wasn't as distinct because it's not an entirely different medium right right yeah. yeah, that's probably it. Because, it's not because look at—I um, mean, it's granted it's true crime, but you know, in cold blood, for example, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if yeah. if something like that can come out, then uh, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you don't necessarily have to fight for legitimacy. I mean, you've seen the ceiling, and it's yeah. pretty high. Yeah, and I think that's the case for prose and crime fiction. It, and like you said, it's it's not a different medium. You know, yeah. comics are graphic storytelling, so I think it's 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 visual. It's much more. It's its own thing, whereas crime fiction is a subset of prose and, and fiction in general. But yeah, I think I think the ceiling is very high, and that you know it's it's just a matter of putting the work out there. Um, and I think the more you limit yourself, or the more you think I'm in this box, so I can't do that, or I can't do this, and you're, you're hurting the work. I think. I, I and I suspect that the fact that like you are the guy who did Archie versus Kiss, like you can appreciate more than a lot of people more than you know somebody who's just setting starting out in this and somebody who um you know really just sees this as being their main job and really feels like again they need to like elevate it mm-hmm. like you can appreciate just having fun in yeah. the process right yeah i mean i try not to take myself too seriously yeah. on all levels you know it's just we're all doing what we're doing and I like that I can do something as bizarre as Archie Meets Kiss or even Archie Meets Ramones and still go back and write this very gritty, yeah. like, noir Miami book. Um, I think humor is important. I, I mean, I try to make the novels funny, too. I try to, like, interject that. I feel if you take yourself too seriously, you limit yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I guess I'm saying versus, like, because, right. you know, I, you get these pictures, uh, this picture of, like, somebody sitting there writing and just being like, this is this is it. Like, this is amazing. This is right. And... and, and you know, this is my opus. Yeah, versus you saying like you know uh, again a little bit cliched, but important that this is just something that you would want to read. Mm-hmm. Do you read a lot of that genre of crime fiction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's funny. I just finished Megan Abbott's new book, which is coming out at the perfect time because it's a noir book about gymnastics. Mm. It's like you know, there's a crime and it, but it involves like the narrative is yeah. gymnastics. So it's coming out now. The Olympics are happening. But I, I made the exception because I really wanted to read this book. I usually don't read crime fiction while I'm revising yeah. or writing. Okay. And it's you kind don't of want sen- yeah. influence? Well, I don't want the influence and I don't want to be... Yeah, I just don't want to be affected. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of sent me into this little spiral like, wow, this is a great book. Yeah. And then you look at your work and you're like, huh. <laughs> but at like the end maybe of- this isn't as great? No, it's just... It just puts you into context. It's like yeah. you see someone do something really amazing, and then you're yeah. like, I need to up my game, and I also need to really kind of hunker down and make this good, which I think is, you know, that's why we create art, because we want to... I think we're getting, oh. getting kicked out. Okay. We should do uh, But yeah, I read a lot of crime fiction. I read... Uh, but like I said, when I'm usually, when I'm working on my own, I try to read other genres. I'm, I'm a big sci-fi guy. I also read a, a lot of true crime. Yeah. I read a lot of nonfiction, so... It, you know, it, it seems like 
it, it seems like so much of it is like the, like gymnastics. So much of it is just like, yeah, I'm 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 watching a lot of gymnastics. I'm into gymnastics. Right. I'm going to set my next book there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like sort of taking. I mean, you know, maybe that's a process, and maybe that's a nice thing that working in a genre affords you is that you know you you can you have this framework, this very specific framework to start out from. What I and what I think she does really well is that she's kind of pushing the envelope of what you think noir is. Mm. I mean, she wrote Dare Me, which is cheerle- cheerleading noir, which sounds funny, yeah. but it's actually a really dark and creepy book. And so I think she, in her work, she showcases that noir doesn't have to be the fedora-wearing detective, sure. and it doesn't have to be film noir. I mean, it, it has those elements. You can take those elements and put them anywhere. So I think she's showing how, you know expandable or how flexible the genre can be so it's but, not really limiting but yeah in the same way I and mean, this is actually a good place to wrap it up because mm-hmm. this will bring us back to where we started right um which isn't something you should point out while you're doing an interview you should just yeah, just do just it ease into it um yeah, we, we were talking about i'll edit all that out we were talking about um the importance of of deadlines mm-hmm. right you know now that you have a kid um I mean, in a sense, doesn't working in genre afford something similar? I mean, rather than thinking about it as having a constraint, having notes that you have to hit, um, you have a starting point. You're not necessarily just staring at, at a blank page. Like, you've got these parameters that you can start out with, right? I mean, is, is having those constraints, whether um, artificial or self-imposed, I mean, that's got to be a little bit more helpful as far as having a launch pad. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps to be, you know, writing a series. So, I, you know, I know what came before and I can build on that or knowing there's certain, like you said, there's certain notes you have to beats. hit. Yeah, certain beats you have to hit. You know, you know, you need a conflict, you need a crime, you need a protagonist and you need a, you know, a, an antagonist. Um, but the trick for me is how do I take those beats and tweak yeah. them, make them interesting, not just for me, but also to the reader, hopefully, uh, and keep them entertaining enough that they don't feel trite. Um, you know, what like we were talking about before, like how many times can you save the city and how many times can yeah. you fight a serial killer? Like to me, I, I, I wrote one serial killer. Have you novel. seen Dexter? Right, exactly. But <laughs> you know, down the dark street is a serial killer book. And that's, yeah. I wanted to get that out of my system and there's a stigma on those kind of books. And I wanted to do yeah. it differently enough. That was entertaining for me. So I think, yeah, it, it does make deadlines and dealing uh, with fiction a little bit easier because you know what you're playing with, but then that, has its own inherent challenges too. Is that part of revising though? Do you go back and look and just like, oh God, I'm just, this is so on the nose and this is so like exactly what this should be. Yeah, revising, I almost like the, to me the first draft is, I, I never want anyone to read the first drafts because mm. that's just for me. I'm like, I've powered through it. Yeah. I've finished this book. Uh, and then revising is this own organic thing where you're... You actually like the process of editing yourself i do yeah i do because it's additive you can add to it um i think there's low points there are points where you realize i have to eat like 300 pages or 100 pages and that's happened before but if you look at it and take the long view you're making the book better um and there are times when i get impatient i'm like this is done i don't want to work on this anymore i'm going to send it to my editor and let it be what it is but i think i appreciate it more when six months later i realize i did spend that time with it and it is, it is what I wanted it to be. And you always want the next one to be better than the last one. There you go. That was Alex Segura. Uh, Alex is somebody that I've known for uh, a number of years now. I, I, I knew him primarily through comics. First as the uh, PR person for DC. He got me a bunch of good interviews with from my website, The Daily Crosshatch. And he was working over there. I spoke to Grant Morrison, among others. Uh, and then he moved over to Archie. And, and I had known him for a while. And we were, um, I think we were like drinking at some, after some comics after party, which is in fact a thing that exists. And he casually mentioned the fact that he was going down to, uh, to Florida for a mystery writers convention which A is not a thing that I realize existed, um, let alone B that he was into it, or C that uh, he was writing uh, mystery books. And fast forward a few years later, he's got two out now. Down the Darkest Street came out earlier this year. It's the second in his uh, Pete Fernandez mystery series. Um, check that out. You can check that out through his website. Uh, Alex also writes comics. Um, I think this week is when uh, his latest Archie book hits, Archie Meets Their Modes. He also did Archie Meets uh, Kiss, which, you know, I like honestly, it sounds like a pretty good gig to, to be working for this company and, and write, writing uh, books about um, Archie meeting famous rock bands, but uh, he's got another passion. 
So uh, thanks to him for uh, sitting down and talking to me about that. And and thanks to him for shedding some light on a world that I know absolutely, absolutely nothing about. So I really enjoyed that conversation. Had that at a coffee shop here in Astoria where he's actually uh, held a bunch of uh, local mystery events. Uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for editing the show together. Um, you should check out Brian's podcast, uh, Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's, um, which... I, I don't know what network it's on. There, there's uh, it's a mis- mysteries, mysteries upon mysteries for for that podcast. But uh, stay tuned to find out what's what's happening with that. Um, yeah, you know, you know what, Brian's the editor of the show. If he wants to interject, <laughs> by all means, please do it right now. Uh, if you did like this program, please consider supporting us over on uh, Patreon. It costs money to host a podcast and to pay brian to edit it together so uh, any any cash you can send our way would be greatly appreciated if you don't have any money but uh like the show consider rating us over on itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you got any feedback it's rylcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rylcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information uh like us on facebook and i think that's about all i got for this week so stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RAYL. Mm-hmm.